0: Hello, everybody. This is Jenna Schneider with She Leads Her Life. I am so excited to have Dr. Keely Reese back with us. If you did not get a chance yet, she was one of my first, she was my first guest on this podcast. She is on episode number two, How to Live Within a Pandemic. And we got so much incredible feedback on that episode that I said we have so much to talk about. I have to have you back on this podcast to share your knowledge and expertise. And it's also been, which I cannot believe, almost two months since I had you on She Leads Her Life. And really, there's been a lot of change during the past two months, but also a lot has stayed the same. And so today, we are just going to address um, what has changed. Can we predict anything that's going to happen in the future right now? and from a public health perspective, and also from a mom and wife perspective, where she is at. And I'm so excited for you to share our wisdom with our listeners today. So welcome, Dr. Reese.
1: Happy to be back, Jenna. Very happy to be back.
0: Awesome. Awesome. If you could just, in a minute or so, kind of recap what you shared in the first podcast with our listeners and kind of the main points, and then we can kind of springboard from there.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So when we first talked, it was right at the, right at the beginning of this. In fact, we were in the, our state was in the, pretty much had just shut down March 13th. Um, I know schools that following week were shutting down. Um, universities were in spring break, an extended spring break. Um, and so we were really at the at the cusp of what was happening in the United States. I mean, we were in the state of Wisconsin, we were still behind a few other states that had experienced this at faster moving rates in um, New York area and of course the first state, Washington state. So we were really already kind of grasping like what has happened in some of those other places and then quickly gathering our wits about us as a state and a nation as to what do we do and really um the first wave of that was a lot of a lot of panic a lot of hoarding a lot of bizarre behavior um around getting materials and you know toilet paper with it i mean just things that flew off the shelves and people that And it just goes back to show you how much happens when we don't have good information and when we don't have leadership that is showing us, um, you know, the way to behave. And when there's misinformation or lack of information, even in the early part of this pandemic, it wasn't so much any misinformation, it was just lack of clear messaging. So you had a nation and states just shutting down slowly or quite quickly in some states and then um and then we just watched over that first month um, other states that still just didn't behave and and follow guidelines and their governors did very different things um but when we very first spoke we were talking about how to do this in a way that you know really just stay level-headed keep good information coming in and most importantly figure out how to keep are you know, your families and your loved ones in your smaller circles as safe as possible? And what would that look like? And none of us could predict that eight weeks later, 10 weeks later, 13 weeks later, we'd be sitting where we are today, depending on where you were in the nation when this started. So like I said, I had colleagues on the West Coast that were way ahead of us, and the same thing on the East Coast. And then it just kind of moved in. And some of our states still have not experienced, of course, the waves. Um, you know, and so like we kind of predicted in public health, the second it actually looked like it would be working, people would say, oh, it was just a conspiracy theory. It was never really a virus. And mm-hmm. But actually what's really happened in eight weeks is we've seen how when we practice these measures, um, it really does work. And we really are able to dampen the the fast spread of it. We're never going to prevent all spread. We're going to slow it down so that people could gather materials and resources. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, and for me personally, it was just one of those spaces of, you know, pulling in, um, getting all my students safe and online and my own kids and just navigating. um, And I mentioned in that first podcast, we moved right at the very beginning of a pandemic, not by choice, um, but based on when we sold our house in early February and a closing date. And so it was very, um, nerve wracking to say the least, but I'll talk about that later if needed to. So
0: Mm -hmm. to kind of touch base on that. I always like asking my guests at the beginning of every episode, where is your head and where is your heart right now?
1: Absolutely. My, um, my head today and my heart today, I kind of have moved into a more routine, resolved way of thinking about this. And I think in the early days, you kind of fight it and you fight the waves that you ride with this and you are constantly telling yourself, well, I shouldn't be feeling that. And, and really today, eight weeks later, it's just this space of living in the moment, truly. Like I think we said we were gonna do that and then you learn eight weeks how to actually do that. Mm-hmm. And so I've moved into a space of, um, I'm tired, like physically and mentally exhausted, but at the same time, at the same, same, same time, I'm like in a routine and I'm um, resolved to that this is just a new way of life and we're gonna to have to continually adapt and navigate the next eight weeks and then the next eight weeks and then the next eight weeks and mm. um that's a little bit where my head is my heart is heartbroken mm. um i would be lying if i said anything else i'm i'm heartbroken for the people that have lost loved ones during this time whether to COVID or other reasons um other people have had babies had deaths um i mean life has still continued to go on during this and um, the part that I think I'm most heartbroken about is just all the loss and the grief and loss doesn't always equate death, but it's, it's everyone that didn't get to have the things that they would have had this spring from graduations to weddings to, um, births, uh, you know, uh, I was thinking of all the people that would have had showers or, um, You know, all the simple celebrations that we really do take for granted, um, whether that's, um, you know, just confirmation, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all even the things that were shifted and so different for people, I think, you know, it feels like for a lot of people, it's grief is how I've been describing it. And so I'm heartbroken for those um, that are grieving those things that are real and tangible. And for those that are our most disparate of our populations that this has hit the hardest in terms of housing, food, shelter, and safety. And so I lay in bed every night doing a gratitude list and thinking and praying and um, thinking of what can we do for the rest of our population that is gonna be continuing to suffer through these um, times when it gets worse. Absolutely. And worse because of the virus or worse because the economy shut mm-hmm. down. There's two things there. Definitely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So parts. I'm
1: exhausted and yet hopeful at the same time. Those are the two words I wrote down.
0: Absolutely. Um, From a public health perspective, where do you believe we are at? Are we making progress?
1: Yeah. So this is such a great question. I'm so glad you asked this question, Jenna. Um, absolutely. The the thing about public health is it always works um, when we do public health, um, and we've have, we've have faced this for centuries in public health. Those of us who've been in public health um, and ancillary fields of medicine and healthcare, and um, so right now we know that things are working. When, when people are practicing um, hand washing, and this is universal for all viruses and diseases that are communicable. Um, when I first started in this profession 20 years ago, communicable diseases were not something on the emerging healthcare issues that we talked about. Um, it was always chronic illness, chronic illness, Absolutely. chronic illness. And the funny thing is about this COVID-19 is that it really highlights um, the chronic illness. Um, so folks that have chronic illnesses are more susceptible to um, coronaviruses and other virulent communicable diseases. We know that all along. If, if, if it's a flu season, our most vulnerable are always those with underlying um, issues. So where this has worked is the social distancing or the physical distancing um, We know this is a virus that thrives on close quarters and spaces where people are having the most risk of transmission to and from um, each other. So when we look at things like long-term care facilities, it's because everyone's in confined spaces and then there's workers going in and out of those confined spaces, which would very much look like a dormitory or a school or any sort of place that would be like a petri dish where this is going to be virulent and people... That have that capacity to um, you know spread those air droplets, and so the physical distancing is working, the hand washing is working, the wearing of masks um, that just prevent the spread when we sneeze or cough or even talk um, and so the progress. The other measures, by doing those simple practices, it also then gave our medical healthcare facilities time in that surge to be able to gather resources, to gather funding, to get um, people on board that are trained, to be able to do the testing, to be able to do I mean, even to be able to have the PPE and the mobilization that we did as a nation to be able to get the highest risk communities and states. Um, and we know there are still states that are fighting to get those things um, and get ventilators at the need, but slowly we're able to do that. And as it moves inward into the, ni- into the states, um, The key word there is it gave us time to mobilize. And that's what the rest of the public really needs to understand is that public health works in that it's um, public health is for the masses. And it helps slow it down for the most vulnerable populations that might not have access to um, being uh, most protected in those situations. So it gave us the increase in PPE. Um, getting ventilators into places and now we're we're seeing so much more um, about it that we need you know much more than those things we need the dialysis we need all of mm-hmm. the other um, uh, medical treatment and you know because we know so much more about the virus um 13 14 15 weeks later and so it also gave us time to do how look at housing and needs for kids and when you shut down schools it, it just put a microscopic lens on how schools are such a function of our community and how they are such a safe haven for food, shelter, safety, on top of education. Um, and it gave us time to make sure that schools were able to get those things out to, and communities were able to mobilize getting food out to families and kids and so forth. So yeah.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Reese, I know you have so many colleagues in public health across the country, when you are connecting with these different colleagues, what has the energy been like when you talk to them um, about what is going on?
1: Absolutely, um, it is a roller coaster. I think that is my favorite um, icon emoji to share. Is that it for many uh, in public health um, and the ancillary healthcare field? It is a roller coaster. So. We have two things happening. Um, well, so with that roller coaster, people are exhausted, tired, um, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, but so there's kind of the frontline workers. So that would include the healthcare workers and any public health folks that are on the front line interacting with other patients, other humans. So that the front line even looks different today. That is your grocery clerks, that is your folks at Home Depot. Um the any of the you know frontline spaces that are communi- communication or transportation or mm-hmm. um, food or um, you know main um, like electrical services, just things that keep the whole water, air, and functionality of a community going. And then you have the behind the scene frontline workers that look like public health that are doing contact tracing, that are doing things that our counties, our state, our mm-hmm. um, you know, our teachers are, that are kind of keeping things going, but again, they might be behind a computer screen. They might be working from home. Same thing there, just sheer exhaustion um, and riding a roller coaster. Amazing.
0: Isn't it amazing? Um, so all of us back in the public health world, like I think back to grad school, which was a while ago now, but I remember Dr. Gilmore saying, um, Dr. Gilmore was one of, our main professors along with Dr. Reese and him talking about the importance of epidemiologists as Dr. Reese would share and all of it. Right. And he would get so excited talking about epidemiologists and how many people actually know what an epidemiologist is now, <laughs> not necessarily something to laugh about, but in our field, right. it, it it's been really eye opening to see the importance of these people that are tracking this virus
1: yeah and it has shed a whole new light on the the work that we do in public health, and that people don't even again we 're kind of one of those professions that you don 't know who we are until you oh wow, you did that and you protected our lives that way mm-hmm. um, and so it's shed some really great light on that, and we 've done a lot of highlighting of our alumni, our alumni from our program, let alone my colleagues across the nation um, it's just so hopeful. And so while it's exhausting, it's so hopeful to see such a community come together. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have almost all of my alumni right now that are looking for work, many of them, over half of them are all being employed by mm-hmm. contractual contact trace um, mm-hmm. positions, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the way out to New York, um, Atlanta area. And so it's really exciting to see them be able to do that. And and I think one of the biggest things too that I see with a lot of the um, county and state um, public health folks, I know that they ride the roller coaster of um, you're just having to counter so much misinformation. I think they spend probably half or 75% of their day just responding to phone calls and emails and social media posts of really hateful, um, inaccurate, um, information. And so you're, they're just having to constantly, you know, stay back with that. And I was, I was one of the things I was looking up, there's over 14,000 peer reviewed refereed, um, articles right now out about COVID-19 that have that are hitting databases and so I mean like that's just astronomical and keeping in mind that this virus has only been um, in humans for six months and the fact that across the globe people are um, publishing studies to help us fastly understand this then it takes the next layer of public health folks to gather that data from peer-reviewed literature and resources and journals and then translate it to the public and to our politicians and people who make decisions about policy. So in a lot of ways, a lot of us as faculty have across the nation, we've also been helping our county and and local health departments by sifting through that data because we have access to libraries and medical libraries. And then we can sift through it quickly, and then get it off to them at yeah. the county or state levels. Um, and then again, it's the we have to translate it to. One of the things that's been really eye opening for our field too is to recognize we've always known that we have a very health literacy issue Literary. in our no, nation.
0: To say that, yep.
1: Um, and now it's just highlighted it even more that people just really don't understand health information and how to understand it and read through it and sift through really good mm-hmm. research and data and what's valid and what's reliable. And, and so, not
0: only that, but we're getting, you know, the time it takes to then review these documents. <sighs> COVID-19 is not a linear virus. It is constantly exactly. changing. So by yep. the time that you get done with a published document that could look very different two weeks ago yep. than different findings.
1: One hundred percent, one hundred percent. That is the unique aspect about this virus: is that it is, um, like many corona viruses, it um, it's so unpredictable, mm-hmm. and so it is. Um, and what we know about it has all occurred within six months because it didn't even exist in humans six months ago. So we're having to sift through so much information. And, and the hard part is that you can only learn from mor- mortality and morbidity. And so death and disease help us learn um, even more from it from other nations, from other states. Um, you know, We have 78,000 deaths and growing in our nation um, 4 million, um, cases of this virus globally. Um, and, and as Jenna said, it's just one of the most unpredictable viruses right now. So the biggest thing that medical practitioners are facing is how to decrease the inflammation of it. We know that it's just this inflammatory virus. And one of the most things in the last month is how it's causing blood clots. Mm -hmm. So that can hit anyone at any age, a blood clot and death from. Um, and then that call,
0: takes the virus from a communicable disease to then a chronic disease down the road. And so here you have a virus that is overlapping both entities.
1: Exactly. And Jenna, you nailed it. That's exactly what um, I wanted to speak on a little bit is that it, it's, we call it from the brain to the toes. It is um, affecting the heart. Um, it absolutely surges the kidneys. Um, So when we were fighting to have ventilators in enough um, hospital um, facilities, now we're looking at dialysis shortages, Um, folks that can run dialysis centers. Um, We also know that it, it just ravages the nervous system in, in really bizarre ways. So it starts with like some folks who will be asymptomatic will have something really unique happen with their taste buds or smells. And they just, weeks after they've had the virus, they still don't have their taste buds back or their olfactory systems working um, as well. And one of the more interesting things in the last couple of weeks that I've really been tracking because we kind of knew this was coming and how it would affect kids. Oh um yeah and so we really have to stay tuned to this and um we the the symptoms are presenting differently we have over 75 cases in new york that are children um and it often starts gastrointestinally and so and it's the same thing in adults people that are coming in they look like they're having like stomach flu and something else and then recognize that it the virus um i just got off of a, a call yesterday that was actually Dr. Gilmore was on that call, mm-hmm. but uh we were talking about how gastrointestinal some signs and symptoms of where it's kind of residing in other people has been really interesting. Um and it I know there's be been-
0: rough. I feel like I've yeah. been pretty calm in regards to the pandemic. Just a shout out to the people that lead the program at UWL you guys trained us the importance of staying calm, especially in any type of pandemic. I mean, that was just drilled in our heads. But when you start talking about kids and this new kind of mutation of the virus, that's when all the hairs on my body stand up. Um, And it's still so early for us to know what this really
1: is. Yep. And I... It's so funny that we're doing this—not funny. It's just maybe ironic. I don't think that's even the word. But it, we're doing this call right during the live um, uh, conversations with the politicians at the Senate today, and you know, just you um, know, when you le- listen to the leaders who have studied this virus in the nation, and virologists, and immunologists, and all of the leading people who this is their their whole life um understanding of how this works and i you know that's the thing um that we need we do need the calm we need the transparency we need we need our population to understand that even if you have two weeks of understanding of this virus down pat and figured out we just don't know how it plays out in a different part of our population. We kind of really understand what's happening in older adults and individuals with comorbidities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just don't really know what it looks like in folks that have, you know, no symptoms of other chronic illness and what they look like as carriers. Uh, we know the viral load is the most interesting part of it when you're, like a lot of viruses, it can lie dormant within for a few weeks. We know that the the virulency of COVID-19 is within the first couple days of the viral load being really strong. So the problem is many people aren't symptomatic in those first couple days. So this goes back to our just being really prudent um, with practices of covering our mouths when we're with people. Um, I know in our state, we're opening small businesses this week um, to allow five ish people in a small business, they can come into the stores. Mm -hmm. I know that's causing a lot of, um, anxiety for some. And then others are like, Oh, fine, let's just open everything up. And Mm -hmm. we have to be really mindful of just opening up and following the phases. And as a nation adapting to the new information that comes out. And I think one of the things that you were asking me about too, is what do we need from leaders? Yeah. Um, we need this like calm, clear, unified message. And then we need the population to be accepting that that calm, clear, communicated message this week might shift a little bit next week (laughs) or in two weeks. That is so important. And I think right now our population that is not trained in these areas most everyone just wants to know, when can I be let out? It's like, you know, they just like, we're all kind of caged and we want to be out and we want, and it's nice weather nationwide and people are sick and tired of not knowing when this is going to end. And that understandably, that is, that is fair. People are exhausted They're worried. They're fearful about money. They're fearful about their businesses, their jobs. Many people have been put on furlough. They've lost their jobs altogether. And then there are others that are working constantly on the front line, and they're exhausted on that end. And I think most of the time, people just want to have like a timeline. People want to know an end date. And I think that's what's really hard right now is that the – that we don't have a perfect, clean, clear end date. So what we do have does shift every couple of weeks and as we learn more about what's happening. And so as we open slowly in some places, unfortunately, we are just going to see a surge and a second wave and we're gonna learn from those mistakes and then we're gonna adapt and then other states are gonna have leaders governors, politicians, healthcare practitioners, public health um, infrastructure that's going to guide them differently than a neighboring state or a state across the nation. And I think we have to look for those leaders and um, look for ways that we can help um, support those leaders. And again, those leaders look different and might not be like the leader of the country. It might look like someone in the arts or in, you know, in a cultural setting or at our state or local um, leaders. Definitely.
0: What do you think the biggest misconception of COVID-19 is right now?
1: Um, right now, today, I think the biggest misconception is that it's done. Um, it's, <laughs> we can open up. It's over. Yeah. We we beat it. It was never there. Um, I think those are some of the biggest misconceptions. And um, the other misconception I've said all along is that people just equate it to oh, it's just like a flu that's a little worse. And what we know is it just isn't. It isn't like a uh, it isn't like a flu bug. It isn't like the stomach flu. In in some it may pass like that and again each person's infrastructure of their own body and their own immune system is going to predispose them and determine sort of their outcome and the longevity of that and right now it's so unpredict- unpredictable we don't know what that looks like um so the biggest misconception is that it's over and it's it's just really not um
0: we're in this for the long haul this is yeah like done. this is not a yep. little 5k
1: yep <laughs> And like many um, other previous uh, coronaviruses and other, um, you know, other pandemics that we've had, even if you go back to HIV, if you go back to um, SARS, MERS, um, you know, it's only that hindsight that we go back and look and you know. And I think I I came into my public health career. At the height of HIV. I was trained in my public health schooling at the height of HIV. And the measures we used to tell people then about HIV in the first wave of that. Wow. Oh, we look back now and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe what we on but it's what it's how disease works at how it's how we learn about it. And mm. only time does help us mm. better predict it. And so Oh yeah. I think those are some of the biggest misconceptions just because people are opening their doors and businesses open. It's not over. Um, and yeah. And so that, that brings up just like fear and people are going to be scared again and are still are. And
0: yep, Yep, absolutely. In your opinion, how do you think COVID-19 has highlighted the health disparities in our country?
1: Oh, jeepers. Um, you could
0: have a whole podcast about that. Right. Right. hours and hours and hours.
1: Right. Yeah, this is um, absolutely, it just has put an absolute magnifying glass on our um, disparities in our nation in terms of um, access to healthcare, access to school, access to food. I always come back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It just sheds a, a absolute magnifier on that basic, um, bottom rung, which is food, shelter, safety. Um, we are not self, self self-actualized humans at this point, right? (laughs) You know, we have moments of self-actualization in a day maybe, but we are not, um, we're just not capable. Many, many people that our neighbors are in our community are struggling to have their basic needs met. And, um, so, the disparities are going to be magnified even more, and I'm I'm doing a, I'm doing another um, series of um, videos with a couple other colleagues here this week, and we're talking a lot about what this looks like in terms of well we know there's a second wave of the virus, but what's the other wave? And one of the big things that we talk about are disparities in mental health, um, substance abuse, um, violence. Mm. Um, we're going to see other um, health ramifications due to this. Um, when families are losing their sources of income, um, the stress that that places on that family, the violence, the substance abuse, the um, the fear of the unknown, um, it, it just it's going to magnify those things. Women who are, are pregnant that are going to experience exorbitant um, abuse, preg- pregnant women always experience high rates of um, domestic abuse and violence during pregnancy. Um, So I, one, number one, I I also wanted to touch on the disparities of our access to just our, you know, our ability to exercise our our rights and our, our, um, you know, so being able to make decisions politically and socially, And so we see things that happen around um, states opening up voter polls when it's not necessarily healthy and safe ways to do that. And our state was one of the first ones that did that quite a few weeks ago. Um, All the way, yeah, so voter access, mental health care. Um, We know our social workers and our mental health care workers are going to be in high demand. Um, They're having to adapt and do, I mean, telemed is just, one thing that's interesting, I love, is that our rural folks are having so much more access to healthcare right now through telemedicine. Mm-hmm. It's just been outstanding. And just to highlight something, it would have took my husband probably, I don't know, six months to get in for a skin check for something that mm-hmm. he was pretty worried about on his face right before this happened. Yeah. And he called one day, he's like, expecting we wouldn't get in to see our dermatologist for yeah. months. Yeah. He got in the next day with telemed, and they took, they were able to take a look at it and determine if you need to have a biopsy and DD is going to have a biopsy. And, um, you know, that might've took six months prior to that. So telemedicine, so we have to focus on the things that are, are working really well and I'm help
0: so glad you said that.
1: Yeah. bring some disparities to others. Um, I know like mental health services too. I just see a lot of um, folks doing mental health through Mm tele-mental health. And I think that's gonna, you know, in schools and some of our other places, we'll have to find other ways to open doors to that as well.
0: Absolutely. You touched a little bit, Dr. Reese, on a second wave of a virus. I wanted Mm -hmm. to touch on that. These are all predictions, opinions, Mm -hmm. But if you had to put money on what you think our fall is going to look like,
1: Mm -hmm. what
0: would you, do you feel comfortable putting that information out there?
1: Yeah. My, my absolute word to describe how fall will look is different. Yeah. Um, We 100% don't know due to the unpredictability of this virus. So I do believe that we are going to be open, but there's going to be um, incredible um, restrictions. And I think the next eight weeks are probably the most crucial. So what I do know um, is I think by organizations, school districts, um, companies, you know, I'll just go with schools as an example. You have to put hope out into the world. You have to give seniors or college students or who are employees an idea that, yep, we can open these parks or this, we can have this ceremony or this graduate, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. and we can put it out there for July, let's say 30th, July 22nd, whatever it is. But the next eight weeks will be telling us to, will that event actually happen? And we actually don't know. Yeah. We can put those dates out there. And then we just have to move along and adapt accordingly and based on what we do know as what will transpire in the next eight weeks. And so I think by slowly opening and doing the phasing of these systems, I think we just have to do it slow and prudent. And then we do have to put things out there for hopeful. I hope we open our colleges in the fall. Do I think that that will happen universally across the United States? Nope. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about college students who travel from one side of the United States to the other the United States, um, I think about Lacrosse, uh, Wisconsin, we are a Mecca, most of our students come from all over the state, um, all over the region, and then you bring them all into this community and have them live in dorms. I think you're putting a lot of people at risk. Um, I, and, that, and that's any college town. Absolutely. Um, I think about Madison. I think about Milwaukee. Um, I think about New York. I've, I have friends that kids go all over. And my own college kid, who where we're thinking about what he's going to be doing, we are going to operate like, yes, you're going to college in the fall. Or yes, it's going to, you're going to go back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it might look very different. And some of the schools that are opening right now in the – um, EU or in some of our Southern states mm-hmm. there, we're going to learn from them. We're going to, it's going to be a case study of Absolutely. what happens in this state or what happens in Europe. And when they reopen, we're going to have to take fervious notes mm-hmm. and watch those numbers. Um, and watch how that, how they operated and what they did. And, and so it might look like a hybrid. Um, we've heard anything from kids going on alternate days. Um, you know, so that there's less kids in a classroom Mm -hmm. and K through 12, we've heard from universities being hybrid where you're in class one day a week. The other day you're a hybrid online. We've heard other universities across the nation, small and big that have just said hybrid for the fall, no matter what Mm -hmm. online, no matter what. And then some that are opening up the doors. And um, I think they'll all have to adapt in the next eight weeks as it is. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful if we do things slow and prudent and we just really watch and learn um, as we have in the last eight weeks from it, I think we'll be, we'll be okay. And, as if we, and in those next eight weeks and 10 weeks and 12 weeks, it comes back to not burning out and finding ways to mm-hmm. support each other and, and uh, learn you know, and really be able to set dates but adjust. Absolutely. That's something out there. But then um, I was talking about um, cognitive reframing a lot and um, teaching people what that is. I'm such a I do it all the time, every day. And I realize, oh wow, half the population doesn't know what cognitive reframing is. Yeah, share was, that. Share that
0: with our listeners. Yeah,
1: that concept of looking at something. And cognitive means just the brain and how we think about something. And reframe just means put it in a different lens, um, put it in it, shift it, alter it. And this has been, the last eight weeks has been a constant cognitive reframe. Things that we thought were, we had to reframe it. We thought we, my kids would go back to school. We thought there would be a graduation May 22nd. And now we've reframe, reframe, reframe. And so it's cognitive reframing is a very, very important tool to help people prevent from um, burning out and, and getting to that overwhelmed state. And even those of us who know how to do it, it's, it's a constant reminder Mm -hmm. hour by hour. Sometimes that we, Mm -hmm. um, even those of us in public health, we, we go down the wormhole. We, I definitely have days where I am in the fetal position and just worried Um, Those days are usually centered around where some infiltration of um, information that stirs up fear and the anxiety is real. Mm -hmm. Um, Turn on any news outlet, right? Yeah, right, right. Any news outlet or someone in, in just in your social media worlds too, I just encourage families to really clamp down, restrict it, allow only so much to come in have conversations about what they are seeing and reading and hearing. Um, And that's the adults too, because early on we did that. I just had to self-protect, put this armor around and say, okay, I can only take in so much, know where my sources are coming in from. Um, Because of course now. Putting
0: healthy boundaries. uh, Yeah. Is what it, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've had
1: so many um, surges in the last few weeks of conspiracy theories and pandemic, and a lot of very bizarre um, behavior. And it's born out of fear. It's born out of misinformation, health literacy. I go back to that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's born out of fear of loss of economy, loss of their business, their jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then it just kind of spreads. Yeah, like a second virus, right? (laughs) It (laughs) It is like a second virus, yes.
0: I have to ask you something a little bit off topic that I didn't even prepare us for. But I am constantly, when people find out that I have a master's in public health and that I coached at UW, you know what the number one question I get is? Is there going to be football in the fall? Living in Madison, Wisconsin, that is the constant, question and i continually give we really don't know a lot right now and um that is a contact sport and is there any type of you know the ncaa is a massive massive organization and there are some universities that will be on the verge of bankrupt if there are not students coming to class And if they do not have the revenue of their sports, do you have any insight to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And being a part of the UW system for over, I don't know, 17 years now, 18 years now, um, that is a a huge cornerstone of, of our UW system and neighboring states of Iowa or Chicago, or yes. think of all of our other top 10. I have colleagues in Michigan and I have colleagues in Washington. And and so, and then working locally with a, um, and then having a senior in track and mm-hmm. looking at colleges for, you know, um, sport and 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 scholarships and scholarships absolutely. that are based on being in person and and whether that look like music or academic you know or sport um, absolutely and so I mean you're going to see we know colleges this is one of the biggest things why um, colleges are not wanting to shut down or not be open in the fall is because the influx and when universities hear that if Even if you're down two hundred or three hundred students freshmen coming in, all students, not even your athletes mm-hmm. i mean that all of that has this domino effect mm-hmm. on on every department on every campus and so you're, and and not to I mean the economic impact of this is absolutely. I mean, it's outside of my expertise other than how the virus is connected to the economy and how the economy is affected by the politicians' decisions. I mean, I understand it from that perspective and advocacy and policy route, but the economic impact for our universities and then for these students and their scholarships. I have really good friends that their kids are 100% were going on a scholarship or that had a year left of their scholarship. And so- Campuses are having to defer that, are, and then each student that they lose as a incoming students, um, that shifts in our economy. So where we saw students that might be going to, let's say, I'll just pick on local. If you were normally going to be going to La uw lacrosse, some of those students are now going to go to an online two year institution to do general education. So mm-hmm. it shifts in the economy. So like our Western technical campus, I predict will be booming. Like, booming. We already have seen and heard that that is happening um, as well as some of our other online institutions nationwide. Um, so again, it'll just shift and divert in the economy and we will need more people and instructors and, um, and that. You know that, it, but but hands down in the coaching world, and and just listening to my son's um, coach and um, a really good uh, colleague of ours who's very connected to football in this region, um, who sends all his athletes all over the world and country for football scholarships, um, it's it's really hitting hard on those universities, and then of course those families, and what will those students do? Yeah. And again, when you have sports that you know, golf versus football. Okay. Well, yep. We Not can probably golf. Yeah. In the fall. Right. We have golf scholarships versus if we have a, you know, basketball scholarship or I think about track even so different yeah. than, and so it's so in, it's going to be so individualized and absolutely every, um, athletic division is going to have to make really hard decisions. Um, all the way from the professional, all the way down to the collegiate, all the way down to high school.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: All those high school athletes that are depending on scholarships. and. I
0: know your son just graduated from high school, and I know he's in the process of trying to decide what to do next year. Um, where is your family at with all of this? How have you been putting on the mom hat during this, and how have you been putting on the professor hat during all of this?
1: Well, I would like to say seamless and awesome <laughs> and riding the COVID wave. No, it, I am literally riding the COVID wave of, This um, is why I love you though,
0: Dr. Reese, <laughs> oh, because you're just so authentic, right? We're all, all
1: nah, right? Um, it is real. It is raw. Um, there are days where we are all in tears in our house. Um, and where we are all at our frustration points. Um, I'm not, I am not gonna lie, there are days that is just not pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my workload in this eight weeks has been exorbitant, so I am online, my meetings are online all day. Sometimes I was clocking nine hours of Zoom meetings or Webex meetings um, while navigating their homeschooling. And so all that to say that emotions are definitely heightened. Um, you have your own fears and anxieties, about the profession, but then I have my own fears and anxieties about my family and my own kids mm-hmm. and l- allowing them to kind of navigate in safe spaces. And and again, we moved in this. Um, and so, and then having to make some really hard decisions as a family about, um, you know, college for my son. And mm-hmm. it's um, not been easy. And we, so, he is pretty well decided that he's going to go to Winona State University. He was accepted to about seven universities across the nation, both coasts, um, the Twin Cities, South Dakota. And I think for the sake of, you know, depending on what, ha- we won't know what will happen to the Minnesota State Schools until a little right. bit later too, but right now, Minnesota State Schools sounding like they are the best um, yeah. financially situated. Yep. And some of the private schools too, but some not. Um, So I think right now he's headed to Minnesota, right across the border. Yeah. Which makes, I think, us feel like he'll be closer to home. I think for him, he feels closer to home.
0: absolutely. There's
1: a safety feature in that. Yeah. Um, And, but that's all still kind of up in the air. We actually haven't sent in a big check yet. Um, When you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on college, that's nerve-wracked about that. Um, So we've adapted by figuring out other things to be really joyful about, and he's figuring out, he's opening his own business. He just started his, we just got the LLC ready to go last week, and when it's safe, he's going to start detailing um, cars for moms. He's going to be a mobile detailer. He's going to go to your house and get it cleaned safely using public health practices and um he's trying to figure out a way to run a business himself and and be able to um you know thrive at a time in his 18 year he's going to be 18 in a couple months here and figure out that it might look really different and um to give well, him some- I will
0: be his official first customer awesome. whenever he can drive to Madison and I guarantee you I have about 10 moms that would be like send them down send them
1: over <laughs> Exactly. He's looking for corporate accounts. Um, and he's just, so watching him navigate that and you know, the loss of potentially all these other things. Um, and then my, my daughter's eighth grade. So the loss of her eighth grade like year in middle school mm-hmm. is equally as hard. Um, and, getting and tell,
0: ready. tell about her business too. So our listeners she, can find her.
1: Yeah. And then high school, she'll be going to high school next year. And, um, she's, she has maintained an incredible steady. Um, she's an e-commerce business. It's called Boho and Birch.
0: I love it and so much.
1: Such an entrepreneur, and not being in school, she gets her homework done super early in the morning, and then she works on her business in the afternoon and evenings. Um, you know, and she just loves learning about the running her business and social media and doing it in safe ways. And because it's e-commerce, you can still. Utilize and support the U.S. Postal Service. Um, Absolutely. And she I have
0: just, ordered from Boho and, Bergen, yes. and I love it.
1: And she's just such an entrepreneur herself. And so watching them both navigate that has been really joyful. Um, and all, all of us see mental health professionals um, to get through this. Uh, and we have operated that way. Um, I think it's important that kids have someone else to talk to besides their parents. Um, so I'm really proud of them for doing that. Um, this is not easy on marriages. I am not going to lie. This is, this, this heightens things in a marriage, um, in an or relationships, not even marriage, but just relationships, um, that nobody probably could predict you're working in each other's space. Um, For many, many weeks, you might not even leave those spaces. Um, So you're kind of on top of each other, around each other, and Mm -hmm. like heightened emotions and um, things that we took for granted about just having your own space, like getting in your car and going to work. And that drive time of like coming home from your job to getting home might take 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's where you could kind of decompress. Mm -hmm. Um, That's gone. Your commute is like from your bedroom to your
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I think if anything that has been and he wouldn't mind me sharing this, that would be my husband's he has a very engaging, intense job as well. And he often rode the bus because that bus ride he then was not driving and he could put his earbuds in and listen to music or listen to an audio book and that was his time. It usually took about twenty minutes on the bus to just you know, decompress. And then it was almost a signal to his brain. Oh, I'm walking in the front door. I am with my family now. And there is this loss of clicking that on and off and how to navigate through that.
1: Oh, 100%. And you're just, your whole routines are different. And as a family and cooking and eating and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then just and then anxiety and worries that each person has about their own self. Like every person in the family dynamic is probably fearful and worried about something very unique to their own situation. And then just giving grace and space to everyone trying to figure that out. Um, It's a lot to navigate as a mom, as a dad, as a, um, as a teen, as a young child, when they, have a harder time understanding things. So the younger they are, um, I don't know if it's harder to be in COVID with teens or little ones or babies, but I I have a lot of empathy for the moms who just had babies during this. Um, when you're already kind of, I'll bring a baby into this. Um, so I think we just have to do a lot of grace giving and space giving and, Absolutely. I I have to give my own self all this dose of (laughs) (laughs) advice.
0: I mean, these are pep talks for me too. Anything I say
1: is something I have to tell myself every day. And, Mm -hmm. and it is an act of sometimes just forcing yourself to get up and do the thing that you don't really want to do, but you know, it's going to make you feel better, whether that's move or do something for a neighbor or someone else or make someone else's day or, um, I have the privilege also of working with a lot of grant writers this semester, Mm. so watching funders shift their money towards COVID-related relief has been really exciting. So funders, whether they be corporate funders or state funding that have shifted dollars towards agencies being able to get money as a grant, so I have tons of grant teams that wrote and then submitted grant proposals during this eight weeks as well um, to look at helping agencies after all of this and a lot of the agencies we wrote grants for are for kids and families and food and um, bike share programs and all these really great things that help run our communities um, that we're going to need even more down the road. Um, but it was really exciting to hear my students talk to funders and listen to the funders say, yeah, we've shifted our funding towards more like relief and emergency relief and food and housing and shelter. And
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. I you hope. Could talk um, with you for hours and hours and hours, and hours and we need to do, I feel like I said this last podcast. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to have to do another. Well, guess what? We're going to have to do another one because this is just so good, so good. Um, what could you leave our listeners with two things that I'm thinking of is how can we continue to support our community and what kind of hope can you leave our listeners with?
1: Absolutely. So Um, the one thing I was going to say, supporting our community, um, is, um, number one, protect each other, Mm. um, support our neighbors. And by neighbors, I just mean sometimes right now the globe feels really big and even the nation feels really big. It's very, and even your state seems really overwhelming. Sometimes the best thing we can do is look right around us. Hmm. Who are the people in our neighborhood are, um, you know, two miles. My sister lives in Ireland and they couldn't even leave two kilometers outside their home. Now it's going to be like five kilometers. And hopefully in a couple months they'll get to move 20 kilometers out. Hmm. Um, but it just reduces it down to protect each other, support your neighbors. I think right now to checking in on others that we might not normally check in on Mm. Um, other people that look like everything's fine or they're putting on a face that it's fine. Maybe they're the people that are most at risk that are um, not, Um, which makes me just go back to the hierarchy of needs. Are there people that need food, shelter, safety um, in our communities One of the cool things that's happening right now in Wisconsin and I know other states, farmers markets will start to slowly open. Those are your local farmers and they'll have curbside ordering and picking up, um, which also gets food share back. So fresh fruits and vegetables and meat and produce and stuff back into families that might be not having had access to some um, food lately. So food share program and our, and again, just supporting the local farmers. Yeah, um,
0: absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. That was one change that we just did as a family about two weeks ago was we still order from local grocery stores, but making sure that we were signed up for a local CSA to support yep. the local farmers, which yep. is then delivered directly to our door right the
1: now. Yeah, yep. it's huge. So those are, you know, or share a box with the neighbor. So you might get a box or you might go to the farmer's market, ask if there's a neighbor that can't get out to, and I think it's just looking out for each other that way differently. Um, I know like in many States, dental offices are now being open again. And this is a big access point. I talked about earlier today with my own kids. Um, It was the first um, time they got to go back to the orthodontist in over like 10 weeks. And yeah, it was kind of devastating. We went backwards. We slid backwards in the old, uh, ortho Mm -hmm. and, um, dental. My son's going to have dental implants and, um, not going to happen. It was supposed to be done already by now. And, but great. They're open, but protect them too. So show Mm -hmm. up to these places and spaces, um, being prudent. This is my advice is, um, supporting our community also means, yep. Shop at the local little, um, uh, you know, all the small businesses that are being able to reopen this week and next week in our state of Wisconsin, I know other states are opening completely. Mm -hmm. Just be respectful of the people that work there. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, wear your masks, wash your hands. Mm -hmm. And it isn't about you and your freedom. It's about other people's safety and lives. And and, um, in the long run, our lives are way much more important. And I know the economy... And it's such a fine balance because without things open, I know that affects the economy and people's jobs and people's lives as well, but none of that's going to be there for not alive and we're dead and oh, our families right. are dead. Um,
0: well, and the bottom line is, and here's my strong public health opinion, is if you follow the guidelines and we follow the strategic phasing in that has been set by public health officials, by doctors, by people that have spent their whole lives researching this. Um, if we follow it, guess what? We get to reopen safely sooner. It kind of, I, I have to think, you know when you're in kindergarten and the teacher would punish the whole class because one kid was acting out? I mean, what doesn't matter if it's kindergarten or sixth grade, whatever, and the whole class is sitting there because one kid acted out, right? Let's be together on this. Let's work together as a community and rise up as a nation to protect the health of everyone else. And then we can get back to normal.
1: Yep. And that's what has to happen. And unfortunately, um, um, until that happens, it's just, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And the, I was going to say too, that when we, you know, like a lot of the economy, the when we can support the local folks that really helps. So if there's a book that you're going to order, order it from a local bookstore versus the big box places that are going to rebound a little faster. Um, Or if you're, you know, I think about all the folks that where one thing will shut down, it, it provides one of the things I was going to talk about is on my recommendations part or the advice is like really think about being innovative and where one thing, yep. We're going to have loss. We're going to have businesses that shut down and it Mm -hmm. stinks. Everything stinks about it. And acknowledging that I think is important. I need I wish our leaders would acknowledge that Mm -hmm. and just offer support and advice and empathy for that. Cause that is where people are protesting and are really going off the rails is they're not feeling heard. They're not feeling supported. And that I'm, and I get that. And so when possible, um, you know, support those locally that you can in your own community in your own backyard because that'll help you feel like you're making a difference. Um, So my, my advice was to behave prudently, wear a mask, do the social distancing, um, provide space when you're in a public space, give people space. We just don't know what that other person is going through or their own fears or their own anxieties Um, dropping the judgment around others and how they're behaving. I think we're so quick to judge why someone is or isn't behaving that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think my other piece of advice is ask for help. This is not a time to be proud and loud. It's a time to be um, asking for help, leaning in, um, whether that's mental health, mental health help, whether that's financial help, um, whether that's you know looking for other ways to make it better for other people. Um, innovation comes out of this innovation and creativity um, and taking the time to reevaluate what really matters to you and your family and your community what do you really care about people's lives Um, things Um, nothing like downsizing in the middle of a pandemic to make you realize that the things that only matter are not things that we have it's the people and The experiences and the memories um, and money, there's so much around fear and money. Money brings out so much fear in people and economy. And if you had to live up to a lifestyle to maintain all that, maybe that lifestyle wasn't worth it in the first place. Um, Because without your lifestyle or without your job, I just go back to, that's where the fear is born out of um, the scarcity, the lack kind of mentality. Um, And then my last thing is just be kind be gentle with yourselves during this, um, giving yourself grace and giving others space and grace to just, everyone's gonna melt down at their own times. <laughs> Luckily in my family, we all kind of have our waves of melting down in different days. Thank goodness, um, hey. it'll probably be a day where we all four lose it in the same day, but yeah. <laughs> um, same thing in your colleagues like you that you work with or your community. There's going to be waves of people that are going to be really low and experiencing loss and grief um, due to death and whatever, or financial loss. Mm-hmm. Then others that are we're going to need to celebrate the good things that are happening to other people during this too. Um, so being kind, just we never know where people are at with it.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Reese, for being on. She leads her life again. Um, I had many people reach out to me and say, you have to have Dr. Reese back on. And so I may just have to twist your arm every two months or so to have you as a guest. You shared so much poignant wisdom and I know it will really impact a lot of our listeners for good. So thank you so much. Continue doing what you're doing. You have always made an impact on so many people's lives. And I truly thank you from the bottom of my heart for always doing and being you. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Jenna. And thanks for um, leading these podcasts. They're great. Um, Same here. I've been sharing and it's just such a great on a walk or a run or just something else to listen to. And you've brought on some amazing women and other leaders. It's been really great to hear. So keep doing what you're doing.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening.